This is episode 112 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Mary Perdue. In Land of Lucy, the story of Seattle Slough's first champion, Mary tells the story of a horse whose short but meteoric career could have changed racing history forever. Sparking comparisons to Ruffian, Land Lucy helped elevate California horse racing to the national stage and could have been the first filly to ever win the Triple Crown. In telling this story, Purdue explores the lives and careers of breeders, owners, and trainer D. Wayne Lucas, as well as her famous sire, Seattle Slough, and shows not only how one filly captured the imagination of racing fans across the country, but also set the stage for another filly turned superhorse, Zenyatta, in the decades to come. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm happy to have guest Mary Perdue on the show. Welcome to the show, Mary. Thank you, Carly. Thanks for having me. And today we're going to be talking about Seattle Slough's first champion, Landaloos. And she, she, Mary has written this amazing book about, about this fantastic resource, and we're going to talk about that today. But before we jump into that topic, how I always like to start these interviews off is asking the authors that come on the show, how horses have touched their life. So Mary, would you share with us how horses have touched your life? Oh, wow. Um, in 25 words or less. <laughs> I, I could talk about this for the whole hour, probably. <laughs> I, I've always loved horses. Ever since I was a little girl, I have no idea where it came from. Nobody in my family has even the slightest interest in horses or horse racing. I was constantly bugging my parents for a horse, but I'm the oldest of seven kids. So the odds were virtually non-existent (laughs) that any horse would ever appear anywhere near our house. There used to be an ad on the local TV for a furniture company and they would have a pony on the stage with the the stage curtains behind the pony. And a guy would come on and say, uh, make a purchase at this company and you can get the pony for nine cents. And they would say the nine cents over and over again. And I mean, I tortured my parents because I said, we need a new couch anyway. (laughs) And it's only nine cents for the pony, but they didn't see it that way. Did they have like so, a back stock of ponies? How can they offer a pony for nine cents? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if anybody ever took them up on it because the cost, of course the cost of having the pony was way more than buying a new couch. <laughs> I'm sure though that got lots of little people to tug on the pants of their yes, parents to the actually pay point. attention to the commercial. Kind of brilliant. <laughs> and to this day, I remember, I think it was called Giant Furniture. Wow. Because I, I mean, and why would I re- remember that all those many years? Because of that pony standing there and just being so tantalizing. But I had a particular love for thoroughbred racing and thoroughbred horses and used to buy all these books and study pedigrees and write them all down. And the first race I remember seeing what and I'm going to date myself is 1963 Shadow Gay winning the Kentucky Derby on a black and white TV in my living room and jumping up and down because he was a Darby Dan Farms runner and I lived in Columbus Ohio at the time and Darby Dan Farms had a farm in Columbus Ohio they don't anymore they had the farm in Lexington and then a farm in Columbus so I felt like I was somehow connected to that you know, that a horse from Columbus, Ohio farm won the Kentucky Derby. So I don't know. It just was something I always had and it never really left me. Oh, that is such a lovely story. And I think so many listeners can probably identify with that story. So many of us were born with it. We don't know where it came from. Our parents are like, what are we going to do with this child who loves horses? And then it becomes a lifelong love affair. Now, the thoroughbred racing was pretty paramount that you mentioned there because you have since 
written, you've been writing about horses, but you also have just released this book, Landalusi, the story of Seattle Slough's first champion. And it tells a story of a horse whose short but meteoric career could have changed racing history forever. Tell us about the gist of this book, and then we'll get we'll dive a little deeper into how you discovered Landalusi and all these cool things that bubbled up around writing this book. Okay, well, she was remarkable in a whole lot of ways. And it, it was amazing. One of the amazing things to me of doing this project was, well, first of all, I really wanted the book to come out this year, 2022, because Landa Lucy raced in 1982. Mm-hmm. And she was the two-year-old of 1982. And she was from Seattle Slough's first crop. So there's all kinds of things we could talk about related to that, but um, she she only raced five times, but yet to this day, if you meet someone who did actually see her, their eyes will light up. And I can tell immediately if someone knows who she is or not by just sort of the immediate reaction I get. And that's one of the things I really wanted to capture in the book was the feelings that great horses, great racehorses um, evoke in people and how in a certain sense, it really isn't easily explained. But if, you have, if you're a horse person and you have that love of horses and you see one that spectacular come along, there's something inside you that just knows it's a once in a lifetime horse and you just get intoxicated by that almost. And so there's a lot of data I could tell you or statistics I could tell you or um, things about her career that I could tell you, but underneath it all, the thing that mattered to me the most as I went along trying to craft a story was that people would get that emotion and that feeling that those connected to her or those who saw her racing live still have today. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me that it, it you know, 40 years later, there's people who still get misty eyed. There's mm-hmm. people who still get excited when they hear her name. And I, lo- and I love that because uh, in, in the book, and thank you so much for sending me an advanced copy so I could read this wonderful story. I mean, that really, it reads like a story, the, the, the way people love this horse and how much excitement and support she generated, not only from her own training team, but also from the public was pretty incredible. But the book mentions that she was almost forgotten. Can you talk to us a little bit about well, that? I, I think there's a couple reasons for that. Um, I don't think that she's forgotten. I even before I wrote the book, I would never forget her. But it doesn't take very long for horses to be forgotten mm-hmm. because the generations are so rapid, you know. And she only did race five times in 1982. But one of the things that compelled me to write this story was I went to the Keeneland Library. It was a bucket list thing. I wanted to do it. I had never been. I didn't know a thing about it. I walked in there. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it looks like a cathedral. To me, it's like a cathedral of horse racing. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I didn't know that it wasn't a lending library. I didn't know that you couldn't just walk in there and browse and take books off the shelves. And so when I found that out, the gentleman behind the desk said, well, is there a particular horse that you would like information about? And I said, well, I can't say American Pharaoh or Man of War or Secretariat. You know, I have to pick a horse that they would have information about that a regular library wouldn't. So I said the first name that came into my head, and it was Landa Lucy. He went back in the back and he brought me out a file, and it was very thin. There were some clippings in there, there were some photos in there. I said, Is this it? And he said, yes. And I said, you mean nobody's written a book about this horse? And he said, evidently not. And I'm standing there and I'm thinking, why not me? Because because it really amazed me that, no, I just assumed that he was going to bring me a book, you know, or or maybe several books. And it, it just, she was so spectacular and she was so once in a lifetime. I felt certain that someone else would have picked up on it. So when I saw that it, that, that no one had thought, well, this is a way to commemorate her, to bring a beautiful thing back to life almost and make 
people who were too young to have seen her in 1982 enjoyed knowing about this wonderful horse. Mm, I mean, thank you for telling her story because I, I was too young to have known about her. So I really appreciated hearing her story. But you know, what you're talking about there is like one of the magic moments in a creative's life or a writer's life or an author's life. It's almost like you were the one that was meant to write the book because I agree. It's kind of astonishing that no one had told her story. There was lots and lots of articles written about her when she raced. I mean, I had plenty to work from. Many magazines covered her. She got a lot of media attention. That's one of the things that makes her remarkable because it was not normal or usual for a two-year-old filly racing in California to attract national media attention at that time because California racing was considered sort of subpar or whatever compared to the East Coast races that were all anybody cared about really, especially when it came to Eclipse Awards. So the fact that she did receive so much media attention after only her second start, I mean, from places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Sports Illustrated, all these places were interested in her and covering her. And that's not to say they didn't cover other horses too, but she jumped out past what was normal for a California-based horse. Mm -hmm. So she helped kind of put a spotlight on California. Plus, she definitely she, did. She was a, a she was helping prove Seattle Slough as a stud uh, as his first crop, and then she had incredible speed. I mean, nobody could catch her, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about like why she was such a blowout phenomenon, like coming right out of the gate and her her beginning of her racing career and why people rallied up to her so much? Right. Her first start in early July of 82, which is early for two-year-olds anyway, she ran a six furlong sprint race at Hollywood Park, her maiden, and she won it in 108 and four which was a world record for a two-year-old filly around the turn. And it's her maiden race. So it was like instant. But then of course, you know, you think, is it a fluke? She comes back a week later in the Hollywood Lassie Stakes. And that was the race that really propelled her and Seattle Slough into the major leagues because in that race, which was the same distance, but was her first stakes attempt, she won that race in 108 flat so she basically broke her own world record. And even more remarkably, she won a six furlong race, which is a sprint by 21 lengths, yeah. 21 lengths. I mean, and people couldn't believe it. One of the jockeys that, that was back in the pack said famously, I beat every horse I could see. <laughs> I mean, it, she was that far ahead that the cameraman was having a hard time keeping all of the horses in the field in one frame. It, 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 it was one of the most remarkable races, many people will say that they've ever seen. Secretariat won the Belmont by 31 lengths or 33 or whatever it is, but that's a mile and a half. This was six furlongs and she won by 21. And that, that margin of victory was never equaled at Hollywood Park for the rest of, for the duration of that track. By Philly or Colts, isn't that? By anyone. By anyone. By anyone. Yeah, that's. <laughs> By that's... any horse of any age at any distance. And in fact, the day that she rode, that she won her maiden, her jockey was Lafitte Pinkai. And so, of course, he was getting top mounts on everyone. He was already in the Hall of Fame. And he rode her that afternoon. And then a couple races later, he was in the Hollywood Express sprint at the exact same distance on the exact same day over the exact same track. And those horses were in contention for a national sprint championship. And she beat them by three or four fifths of a second. I mean, just comparing time to time. So when he got off of her the first time, he looked up at the tote board the, and, and saw the time and thought it was a mistake. <laughs> because she moved so effortlessly and so smoothly he really was deceived it was his first time riding her and he was deceived by just the effortless way that she went 
into not thinking she could really have been going that fast. Wow, that's incredible. This is a difficult story to tell because there is a, a sad ending. Did you did you have trouble writing about such a miraculous horse that that faced such a short career and a short life? Was that difficult? Very, very much so. Mm. In fact, when I was working on the book, actively writing chapters and under some pressure to finish it, (laughs) (laughs) I I kept putting those chapters off. You know, Mm. I found myself not wanting to write them. And yet I wanted to tell as much as I could about it so that people would understand what happened to her without that being the major part of the book. Yes, she was a filly who died young, uh, and and that's awful, but I wanted that to be more than balanced out by celebrating her accomplishments on the track and what she meant to people. Mm-hmm. And I really struggled with how to end it because I didn't want to end it on a down note. So the last chapters are more about her legacy and her significance to history and the way to this day people still feel about her. Yeah, I think you did that incredibly well. And and again, I really think you showed just how important this horse was to people, in particular, the relationship between her and her trainer. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Were you able to interview him? I mean, Yes, I did. I interviewed him for about an hour, more near the end of my process. I wanted to have a big picture before I went and sat down in front of Wayne Lucas, one of the most iconic thoroughbred trainers of all time. And I felt like almost at the beginning, he was a little reluctant to talk about her because it really, really affected him deeply. She came along pretty early in his thoroughbred training career. He'd only been training thoroughbreds full-time about four years. And to have one that brilliant come that early uh, and then lose her was a huge blow, not just to Wayne, but all the people associated with her. But he, he said on the record to many publications that he was not going to let himself feel that way again, that it was just too painful. Yet I think as we went along and we were talking, he was starting to enjoy remembering her and remembering all the great things she did. There was some, some pleasure in that on his part. But yes, I, that was one of the things that surprised me as I was doing my research, how, how deep an emotional imprint she made on him. And he wasn't alone, but I mean, he was the closest person to her every day. And it really devastated him. Yeah, and I, you did such a wonderful job of capturing the, his relationship to her in in the book, and it, my heart was like breaking because I can I I can only imagine. And then and then when he said that he would, it was like it was like his great love affair with a horse, and he was protective yeah. of his heart to never feel that about another horse again. Yeah. So I mean, wow. I mean, you really did capture how special she was. So what are your thoughts on uh, you know? Because I I've been galloping around, and after I read your book, I was like, I want to devour everything that's available on YouTube and and watch interviews. And and I did that. I mean, your book inspired me to like dig a little deeper. Oh, great. That's yeah, so cool. I watched um, his interviews. I, I watched all sorts of things like from way back when, like that, that was actually on like um, CBS sports or something from like the 1980s. It was yeah. like really exciting to watch that stuff. I heard a lot of comparisons between Landalusi and Ruffian. What are your thoughts on, on, on that conversation? Well, first of all, you, you can only compare them at two. Mm-hmm. You can't because Landalusi only raced it to. Near the end of that season where she was running, uh, Stephen Crest of the New York Times on the front page of the New York Times sports section had a chart comparing Landalusi and Ruffian. Uh, Jay Hovde, very famous turf rider, very excellent turf rider, wrote an article where, where the title was Another Ruffian? Question mark. It was unheard of for any filly to be compared with Ruffian. It just, it was like Ruffian was so otherworldly that you just wouldn't do that. But yet they did, and it was legitimate in a whole lot of ways. Landa Lucy won three races at two at distances greater than anything Ruffian ever attempted at two. 
her shortest races as a juvenile were ruffians longest. And she set a world record in one of those. Landa Lucy carried more weight in the Enochia stakes, stakes than Ruffian carried in her entire career. And Landa Lucy's campaign was designed to cap her two-year-old season with a very rich and important race against Colts, which is something that Ruffian's owners were never wanting to do until, of course, that unfortunate match race. But Wayne Lucas had a philosophy about running Colts against Phillies. He, he's never been afraid or shy to do it. And he's had very good results doing that. But he had her poised to run in a race called the Hollywood Futurity in December of 82 against Colts, which if she had won that race and won the Hollywood Starlet for Phillies right before it, both of which were very doable things, she would have been the first juvenile Philly millionaire, almost certainly horse of the year, which is something that even Ruffian never did. Mm. So there's, there's, I don't mean to take a thing away from Ruffian and, and I would never dream of doing that. And in a way I don't like comparing horses because mm -hmm. it sort of detracts from the grandeur of each of them to do that, I think. But there are some interesting things that people probably don't know about Landalusi that did spark comparisons to Ruffian, and rightly so. Yeah, and I, and for me, I think what was similar about them is that they a were Phillies, right? B they really inspired like the public to to like get behind them and root for them. Right. And it, both had pretty horrific sad endings to their stories but turf writer andrew byer once called the brilliant daughter of seattle slough conceivably the greatest philly that ever lived what do you think certain phillies have obviously in addition to great speed that enable them to capture the attention of the public and reach the level of success that landa lucy reached i mean she was obviously a very special horse but she was reaching the, the beyond just fans of thoroughbred racing she was like creating like a, a really exciting conversation with not only thoroughbred fans but the public what, right. what, what would you say was like the draw well, i think there's a whole bunch of reasons i can't say which one is the most important but the fact that she was a daughter of seattle slough and from his first crop and the fact that he had gone to stud i mean it didn't seem like that long ago you know, he went to stud in 79, 78. Yeah, 78. And she was born in 80 and she raced in 82. So it was like, wham, you know, he's barely off the track and she comes along. And I think coming so close on the heels of Ruffian, it was surprising to people and, and kind of like, I, I talked to one lady who said she was our Ruffian and she meant the West Coast's Ruffian. It was like they got a superstar like the East Coast had had with Ruffian. And there were a lot of West Coast people and fans that were drawn to her for that reason. Over and over again, when you read articles about her, they'll talk about her charisma. People, and it's an intangible, you can't really exactly quantify why people are drawn to certain horses. I think it was partly because her running style was so effortless and beautiful and smooth. And she just seemed like she was out there having a good time. She didn't seem like she had was really, really pushing. She never really was. And, and I just think that people can tell when they're in the presence of a once in a lifetime horse. You know, you just know that that doesn't come along every day and it makes you want to go to the track and see the horse and just be up close. Yeah. And pay attention. I, I just, and I loved also in your book, like I, like I felt like my heart was racing with her when you, when you talked about how effortless these things were for her and how she came off and she just knew, and she was like, I'm going to go to work. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I think, I think that's so great. Uh, did you discover any surprising information that you didn't expect while you conducted your research for this book? Well, yes, yes. And no, I think whenever you start out researching, you have to keep an open mind and because you will find things that you didn't expect and your idea of the story when you start it and the idea of the story when you end it sometimes bear very little relationship to each other. I didn't know that she came along so early in Wayne's career. 
I didn't know that he had such an emotional attachment to her. Uh, I didn't even know that she was his first champion. He, that, that she was the first horse that won an Eclipse Award, first thoroughbred horse that won an Eclipse Award that he trained. And the ironic thing about that was he kept saying throughout her career that he had no interest in, in the Eclipse Award that he'd been burned in the past by chasing that, taking Western horses East or trying to prove something to the Eastern racing establishment. And he just decided he was done with it. He was gonna keep her in the West. And if he thought she was good enough that if they really wanted to challenge her, they needed to come out there and do it instead of the other way around. So I didn't know any of that when I started. And I didn't know that she was the first horse to win a juvenile championship racing exclusively in California. It's very clear in your writing that that you were very invested. Like a couple things, like how did it feel when you wrote that final paragraph of the book and, and we're like, wow, I'm done with this. Like, how did that feel? To be honest, I cried. Oh, I can see that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I just, it's, it is an emotional thing, at least for me. I mean, yeah, you have the, the, analytical part of your brain that's trying to construct the story and make it work but you also have the feeling in yourself that I have to have to write something mm -hmm. if I don't really feel it I, I'm not going to have the self-discipline to finish it mm -hmm. I just know that about myself yeah so this this was your story it came to you when you visited Keeneland Library so so through the adventure and how long did it how long was the process the whole first year was research mm -hmm. And from the time that I stood in the Keeneland Library till the time I delivered a finished manuscript to the publisher was four years. I don't know. I learned a lot of things. I think if I ever did do it again, which I'm not sure whether I'm going to or not, I could, I could maybe do it a little quicker. But it was really important to me to find almost everything I could to make sure I wasn't missing something or leaving something out that was super important. So, yeah, it took four years. That's the beauty of, of firsts, right? You, you learn that, A, you can do it, right? And then yeah. you feel very satisfied with the, with the story that you create. And you, you, you have to start somewhere to know what the process is for, for future books, right? So what, through all that, through the four years of spending time with Landa Lucy and, and the people surrounding her, what were some of the bright spots that you remember uh, from, from, the, from the process? What was something that was really special? Well, interviewing Wayne mm -hmm. was in his barn was very special. Meeting John Williams, who was the manager of Spendthrift Farm. Uh, the, he was in charge of all of Spendthrift Farm, which at the time that Landa Lucy was born there was the premier breeding, thoroughbred breeding establishment in the world, arguably. And he, he still lives in Lexington. I tracked him down and uh, talked to him. He turned into a huge resource for those early years when SLU first came to stud, what the atmosphere was like at Spenthra Farm, very, very different from today's breeding farm. I guess the biggest bright spot is how many people, once they heard her name, they wanted to help me. Oh, that's I great. didn't really, I won't say that everyone was that way. I was constantly amazed by the lengths to which people were willing to go to help me want, because they felt the same way I did. They wanted her to be remembered and they thought it was important. Oh, that's wonderful. And look at the gift that you've given her, right? By you know, remembering her story and then the people that surrounded her. And then you gave after all this time, people and outlet to come and support you. So Landa Lucy's story can be told. I mean, that is just really, really magical and special. And I know that uh, you worked with University Press of Kentucky to, to publish this book. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that relationship came about? Uh, did you, that magic moment where her file fell into your hands at Keeneland, did you then approach them or did they come to you because they heard that you were writing her story? How did that work? It, it is kind of the way this worked out was kind of amazing. I thought that I was going to write the whole thing before I even approached a publisher mm. and met Jennifer Kelly at Saratoga when she was on 
her book tour for her first book, which was Sir Barton mm -hmm. and the making of the American Triple Crown, which is a wonderful book. And I went up and introduced myself and she's the one that said, no, you don't write the whole manuscript. You do a proposal for nonfiction and you submit it to publishers. And uh, I thought, oh man, the time that it'll take me to do a proposal, I could just keep going. <laughs> but I, I took her advice and already at that point, Ed Bowen had taken an interest in my project, which blew me away. And he connected me to the University Press of Kentucky and uh, recommended because he had read a few chapters that I had already written and sent him that they take a look at it. So they did and I did the proposal and they offered me a contract. And that's when it went from something that I was doing for myself, but just because to, oh my God, I have a contract and I have a deadline. I have to do this now and, and I have to do it by this time. So that was, that was really a, a gift from God to me because it made me get it done. Mm -hmm. I, I, part of me thinks I'd still be writing it if I was not under that pressure to deliver. I, I needed that. That's fantastic. There, there is something to be said for deadlines. And then I love <laughs> Jennifer Kelly has been a guest on, on this podcast before, and she's lovely and she's very helpful. And these are the stories I love to hear where authors are helping other authors and we're right. uniting and helping each other because Right. The the University Press of Kentucky is the perfect place for your book. And and look at how all that magically wound up that you were in the right spot. And it was. And and I always had in the back of my mind that that's where I wanted it to go. But I didn't understand enough about the ins and outs of doing a nonfiction book. So, mm -hmm. so it worked great. out. Yeah. And and that's that's the thing. Like, I, I believe other authors really want to help other authors, especially telling horse stories you know, help them out and help them along right. the path and, and share information. That's so important. So congratulations on the book coming out. It's a lovely story. I recommend, you know, not just people who love horse racing, but people who love horses or just a good story to check out this book. It's fantastic. How have you been reaching your readers since the release of the book? Well, some of the usual ways. I'm trying to do a lot of in-person events and those have been working out really well. I went to the Racing Museum Hall of Fame. I'm going to be the featured guest author at the Keeneland Library Lecture Series, which will be especially significant to me because I'll be returning to almost the exact same spot that I stood in when I got that flash of, I, I wanna write this book, to now being the featured speaker at the Keeneland Library. And so I, I like to do in-person things. There's some plans to go to California to be at the tracks where she raced mm -hmm. when the races come up that she raced in and that we're planning. And I'm trying to do some things in Florida around Ocala because I don't live far from there. And then I have a website, which is landalusibook.com. And you can get there's a video trailer there. There's a lot of basic information if you just want to check it out. And you can also order from that site. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And I just want to always tell people that my last name, Purdue, is spelled P-E-R-D-U-E, like the chickens. <laughs> because no one can ever find me when they try it the other way, like P-U-R, which is like the school. Mm -hmm. so and I'll make sure to like link to those places in the show notes so people can get directly to you. And I've heard that uh, the World Equestrian Center in Ocala there actually does book signings and hosts, hosts events like that. So if you're not far from there, that would be a great spot to, right, right. to, to sit down. I, I'm so glad you're, you're able to get back out there and do in-person things. That makes such a big difference. Right. It does. It does. And then for you, I'm curious. I love to ask these questions because the answers are always a little bit different, but what has been the hardest part about being an author for you? But then on the flip side, what has been the very best part so far? Okay. Well, I think the hardest part about being an author is the self-discipline required <laughs> to, to actually do it, to not talk about doing it, to not say, oh, I've got it all written down in my mind. All, any of that to actually sit down in front of the computer pretty much every day 
while you're serious about it and say, I'm going to sit here no matter what. It, I'm, I'm a procrastinator and you always find ways to not do it. And, you know, I just, people say, what should I do? What should I do? I said, just get in the chair. Mm-hmm. That's it. If, if you don't do that, you, it's possible to sit in the chair and nothing happens. But for sure, if you don't sit in the chair, it won't happen. So I, I think that is hard for a lot of people. And, and it is for me. Um, the other hard part is everybody asking me what my next one's going to be. <laughs> Because honestly, this one took so much out of me. It's like, I just want to enjoy it for now before I mm-hmm. contemplate something else. Mm-hmm. As far as the best part, it is one of the most fulfilling and satisfying things I have ever done to write the story, to feel like I'm sharing what I've learned about her with people who don't know and and the feeling of bringing something beautiful back to life. That was a really important part of it to me. Oh, melt my heart. And you did. You did that very, very well. Thank, thank you, you for writing. Thank you for writing this story. Those are great answers. Uh, and then you mentioned procrastination, right? <laughs> I, I think I think that gets every writer. I know I do it. And you are 100% right. Sit in the chair. And when you do, it magically does happen. Like every time I go to sit down, I'm like, I don't I have no idea. I don't know where I'm doing. I don't know if I'm gonna write anything. But then I just start writing. And somehow, these books get written, but you are so right. Because you know that you are a procrastinator, did you put in place any writing rituals or routines to help you get your bones in the chair? Well, I, I, I didn't always write at the same time every day. I didn't write for the same amount of time every day. I just wrote every day somehow or other and then it got to be like well if I get it over with quicker in the day (laughs) then I don't have it hanging over me all day you haven't done anything Mm -hmm. and 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 it also sometimes you really do get wrapped up in it to the point where it's it's pleasurable and you and you think to yourself over and over why do I do this to myself why do I make it something that I don't want to do but then when I get in it I do want to do it and it, mm-hmm. it makes me feel really good. It's like escaping. Mm-hmm. And so I, those two feelings being back to back. The other thing I think you have to do is you revise and you revise, but you have to get to a place where you say it's good enough because it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be exactly what you want. I hear this from writers all the time and they say, you know, well, you know, I have this great idea, or I know the story is really good, or, you know, I, I said, you have to get used to the fact that you're going to throw a lot of stuff out, no matter how good it, how I have written things that I thought were great when I was writing them. And then later I read it and I think, this is <laughs> off. I've had the opposite happen where I'm writing and I really feel like I'm struggling. And then I put it away and I come back to it and I think, this is pretty okay. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't, how you feel about it when you're doing it doesn't translate into what it really is. And sometimes you write a beautiful passage or a beautiful chapter. And, and by the time you're starting to fit the pieces and parts together, you just don't have a place for it. You have to let it go. Yeah. It, it, that happens. I think if you're a serious writer and, and, and striving to produce a really good product. Yeah. Oh, words of wisdom right there. Now, the cool thing about the internet is maybe some of those beautiful chapters that didn't make the book that had to be cut can become bonus material. You know, it's like, I guess so. I guess so. (laughs) Right. You got to like think outside the box, but no, well, very, very well said. What do you wish you had known when you first started out writing? (laughs) Well, I think I wish I had known how long it was really going to take and what a, a great deal of effort it was going to take more than what I imagined at the beginning. But then when I think about that, I think that's kind of a double-edged sword. It's like, if I really knew what I was getting into from the minute I first started researching to today, I might not have done it mm-hmm. because you, you have to be carried along by, okay, what's next? What's next? What's next? Mm-hmm. Until you 
until you finish it or, or right now, you know, promoting it and marketing it and explaining it to people, which in some ways is every bit as time consuming as writing it. So I don't know. It, it, and in my case, I really do feel like this book has changed my life. Oh. I think I'm a different person because I did this. I have a different feeling about myself and what I'm capable of doing. And it resonates with me. And it, it, like I said before, it's just been an extremely fulfilling and satisfying thing to do. Oh, that is so beautiful. And what's so amazing, Mary, is that having written this book is going to keep many years from now, still opening up doors of adventure for you because you wrote this. I mean, you're going to become kind of, you are like an expert on Atlanta Lucy, right? But who knows what other projects or things are going to start filling right. the spaces because you, you put this into the world. Yeah. Right. And, and you do, you do get connected to people. I've met so many people mm -hmm. that I never would have met any other way. And I have friends now that I never would have had any other way. I mean, this, she, and, and the story has enriched my life beyond anything I ever could have imagined at the outset. It was not my intention for that to happen. I just went with it and followed it where it took me. And the, the relationships and the connections to thoroughbred horse people among all the things that have happened to me is right up with, there with the things I cherish the most. That's beautiful. And thank you for having the guts to follow that calling because so many people would like that would have popped up and they would have not seen it or ignored it and walked away. Like you followed it and you were brave and you didn't look at the big picture, you know, which you can do when you're writing a book. You just took baby step, baby step, baby step, followed the lead, followed the lead, followed what was moving you forward. And now you have this beautiful story you've written. So uh, it's brave to do that. So I commend you for well, that. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for sharing with us how much it's changed your life. I mean, I, he I hear that and I, and I could read it in your, in your work also. Now, have you listened to or read anything recently that has like really inspired your creativity? Well, I don't know if it's inspired my creativity so much as I always like to have something to shoot for. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate really good writing. Uh, most of my life, I've written fiction, mostly unpublished fiction, but that was sort of the direction I feel more natural to me. It's more natural to me than nonfiction, but I've read two nonfiction books uh, it, that are about thoroughbred racing that I think are as good as it gets. There's many others, but, but these are the most recent ones. One is Out of the Clouds mm -hmm. about the story of stymie i think that one won the tony ryan award for writing about thoroughbred racing and that was one of the best books about racing i've ever read and another one equally good is a, a book called winter money by andy platner which is a collection of short stories and it blew me away i mean it just it, it as a writer writing in that sort of same genre it gives you something to aim for that's that's fantastic. And that, that's the beautiful thing about being a writer author is like there's always room to grow with each new project. And do you find that you read differently now that you've written yes. a book? Yeah. Yes. I, especially because of it being nonfiction, mm -hmm. because you can't make up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but what, I'll find myself reading and I'll think, now, how did they get that? Mm -hmm. Where did they get that from? Because you, because when you've written a nonfiction book that you have to document with footnotes and sources, which I did, you, you can't use it unless you can document it. And some things take so much work just to document. You, you, you kind of think you know what might have really happened, but you have to piece together different accounts of it or different memories of it. And it was 40 years ago, even people that want to remember and are very well intentioned will give you conflicting versions of the same story. So when I read nonfiction now, I know what goes behind it to get that one sentence or that one paragraph that seems very effortless writing. It's not stylistically, you know, um, ornate or anything, but you have an appreciation for all the legwork that writer had to do to write that paragraph. Wow, like the truth of the core of the paragraph. Now, 
you brought up something interesting, which is documenting or the references and the footnotes and all those different things. How did you keep track of all of that as you were <laughs> writing this book? Like, is there is there a way to do that? Or I, I'm I'm sure there are better ways than the ones I use, and I'm sure that my publisher, to be charitable, was probably frustrated with me on many occasions because it's not my natural thing. In the beginning, I put my sources in the body of the work because I, as I was editing, I wasn't sure I was gonna keep stuff. So why document every single thing until you have something that resembles a finished version? Um, but it was very hard. It was, mm -hmm. that was part that I really didn't like. I would have rather just everyone trust me. <laughs> I look at the back of these things, like when I'm reading these nonfiction, like historical accounts of things that happen, like like your book, and I'm just like, whoa, like, how do you keep Yeah, yeah. It, it was administrative, clerical, you know, scholarly thing. And yeah. I didn't set out to write a scholarly book, and I didn't even set out to write what you would call a conventional history book. That isn't the book I wanted to write. I, I wanted to write a nonfiction book that read like a novel. That, mm -hmm. that tells the story and engages the reader on an emotional level, not just a, 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 a chronicle. Yep. And you did that very well. Yeah. And I, I love those kind of books where it is, a, it's an actual account, but it reads like a story. And, and this one did that. So given that you've tried your hand at this, do you, do you think now that fiction will feel easier because my next question for you is what's next and you said earlier you don't really like that question I, <laughs> I do agree with you you should take a breather let the muse refresh enjoy and celebrate this whole period of promoting the book but have you been kind of thinking about where you might go with this next I can see myself writing a fiction book about racing mm. I but I don't have a plot I don't have characters I don't even have uh, the, the, the kernel of the story it just, I think my reason for doing it would be that I could, for me, have more freedom. Who knows? <laughs> yep. Well, you got, you just, I mean, that's what I believe it. You got to wait for the spark, right? Like whatever that, like that moment you walked into Keeneland and they handed over her folder, that was the spark that led you on this journey. And I think as a creative, that's just, that's what you're, what you wait for. And then all of a sudden it's going to show up and you're going to be like, yep, that's where I'm going. And you just be brave and follow where it takes you. So I, I believe that will show up for you again. It already did once, right? <laughs> if it does, great. If it doesn't, this is great too. Yes, absolutely. Always celebrate. You don't always have to be looking for what's next either. I, I totally agree with that. Mary, I, I really want to ask you this question because uh, you, I, I love everyone's different answers to this one too. What does creativity mean to you? I don't feel that I was very creative with mm. this book. I knew what I was aiming for. I knew what I wanted. I wasn't ever sure that I was actually getting there. It felt less like creative writing and more like bridge or road construction. <laughs> like, you know, there's all these pieces and I, I can see the flow of the story, but it was more like inserting passages and making it flow it was more like like construction than it was like writing I mean when you sit down to write fiction you can sometimes just let it rip mm -hmm. but not in nonfiction because it doesn't work that way you I, I would collect all my notes from each chapter file and I mean I took pictures of it because I want to remember it, how spread out everything was and cut and paste and tape and trying to remember things and just getting it right. I'm sure there is there is a creative aspect of this when you're all, when all is said and done. But in the thick of it, when you're doing it, I didn't feel like I was creating as much as I was making. Mm. And at the end, you think, oh, I did create something. Mm -hmm. I did but I didn't do it by thinking about it as a creative process. I thought about it in a more logical way, I guess. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like you're building, right? You're building in order to create something that hadn't existed before, right? So that, that's a, that was a great way to explain that, particularly around this project. And I think that that's, that's really healthy for listeners to hear that are looking at 
possibly writing a story, a historical story about a horse. You know, these are the things that that people need to know. So, I mean, that was really insightful. Would you let listeners know where they can find more information about you and your books one more time? Okay, my website is landalucybook.com. You can order from that site or you can just check it out. And there is also a video trailer there, Mm -hmm. which gives a three minute sort of sneak peek at the whole story. Also on that site is where I'm going to be next, where I'm going to go as far in advance as I know about it for sure. (laughs) And you can buy the book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble online. I know it's being carried in bookstores, but I can't tell you which ones exactly. And then I'm on Facebook, Mary Purdue, (laughs) P-E-R. And I'm on Twitter, same thing, Mary Purdue. Fantastic. And I will make sure to link to those places in the show notes so people can get directly to you. And I'll, I'll include the, the link to the trailer that you mentioned also, because it's really lovely. And Mary, thank you for writing this story. Thank you for telling us who weren't able to see her in person, Landa Lucy's story. It was a wonderful read. And thank you for putting so much of yourself into it and for sharing yourself with us today. I have so enjoyed the gift of your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carly. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.